Welcome to Experiencing God's Goodness. My name is Michelle Corgett, and today I want to invite you to join me as we hear stories of how individuals have walked through some incredibly difficult times and found God waiting for them in the middle of their darkest hour. We will hear some awesome testimonies of how God has shown up time and time again in the lives of these individuals and how they have experienced God's goodness. Today we want to welcome Ruby. Ruby, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, You know, I heard your story about six months ago. And I will tell you, I was so touched by uh, how what God has done in your life. And so I wanted to invite you here today to uh, tell the world, basically, your story. I know part of your story is probably difficult to tell, though. But I'm going to let you uh, go ahead and share with us where you come from and what has happened and how God has changed your life. Great. And so I'm really happy to be here. I'm very excited about this. Uh, I think that when we have, when God has blessed our lives and the way that he's helped me transform my life, I feel like it's my responsibility to um, express that and to talk about my experience to hopefully help other people come to a place of healing and build a relationship with Jesus. So I'm going to start my story. I it, It's a little unique because part of my story God speaks to me through poetry is and I didn't even start writing poetry until um I got saved and so the story is going to break off into poetry in a in a few places and um so just 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 be mindful of that 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 you'll be able to tell when my voice kind of changes and hopefully the transitions are effective on radio I think they will be I'm sure they will be you'll be fine The story of my addiction is not unique. My journey to recovery is many addicts never find their way. I was in the third grade when I discovered the magical escapes of writing. It was during a third grade class assignment when we were asked to recall a dream. This was a no-brainer. The same ferocious monsters had been chasing me for years in a reoccurring nightmare that symbolized my childhood. Straight from the pages of Marie Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are, I'd been riding the treacherous waves of dark waters for years, fighting off monsters and trying to stay afloat. Except my dad was disguised as the monster, and Max's sailboat was the small bed I shared with my mom and baby sister. It was my job to protect them, and I couldn't. As I sat at my desk, my stomach churned with dread, Fear and uncertainty had intricately woven itself into every stitch of my life so far, and writing about it would surely cause an unraveling of sorts. Being forced to recall those drunken nights when he would beat my mom bloody or humiliate her into submission were more than I could bear. As I allowed my mind to drift into a ponder in prance, my wrist began to swing and sway with my pen and the ink waltzed across my page in a shattering memory dance. In the echoing distance of the sliver moon lies the deep abyss of the midnight sky. Darkness awaits. Drunkenness awakes. The lingering captor of a churning angst. These were the nights when the wall clock knew 
when the hands of time stood still and life as I knew it ceased to exist, all tangibility suspended into mid-air, frozen, motionless, petrified. His strength would overtake my body, but my mind flew free. Nothing could stop me, not even he. Up I would fly, past the deep blue sky, through the green rolling hills, into a world where... When I was a little girl, I dreamed of one day becoming a veterinarian. I wanted to drive an old pickup, live in the country, and have 11 dogs. I was very specific about that number, as 11 was the year I kissed my childhood crush Casey Doyle in a game of spin the bottle. And 11 was the year I started junior high, which was the same year as the 49ers beat the Bengals in the 1989 Super Bowl. And 11 was the year I finally found a way to mask the pain of the dark secret I'd been carrying for years. Drugs. First Peter 5.8 says, Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I was weak, and I was vulnerable, and I was his perfect prey. You see, with drugs, I thought I'd found a solution. I thought I'd finally found an answer. I thought I'd finally found a way to black out the heart-wrenching memories my mind continued to play. I thought I could erase the life of an abused girl. But trauma attempts to write our story with a permanent pen, and it's not easy to erase. So I dropped out of school in the ninth grade. <clears throat> I'd already been in juvenile hall a few times. I was pregnant by 15 years old, and I had two kids by the time I was 19. I was 20 years old the first time I tried to get clean because I really wanted to get clean. I really wanted to be a good mother. I just wasn't equipped for it. So I decided to get clean. I was heavily involved in AA and NA. I went to meetings regularly. Um, I was the secretary of area service, and I put five and a half years of clean time together. I put myself all the way through college, graduated with honors, and I got offered a job at a local accounting firm that our whole class had been competing for. And I'd worked so hard to get to that point. I was so proud of myself. I was gonna beat the odds of teenage motherhood. But three days before my graduation ceremony, I relapsed. And on the day of my graduation, a day that I'd been looking forward to for years, I was so out of it, I was falling asleep on stage. <clears throat> I still made it through that day and graduated, but I never showed up to the first day of my new job. Within a year, I'd lost everything. My new car, my apartment, my money, and my kids were all gone, and I was sitting in jail with a felony charge asking myself what just happened. How does something like that happen? And the answer is shame, unresolved shame, but I didn't know that at the time. You see, I, I didn't feel like I deserved success. I didn't feel like I deserved happiness. I didn't feel like I deserved any of those things. And so my addiction swooped in and took me down hard and fast. And for me, addiction is, for everyone, addiction is ruthless. There's nothing comparable. And when I start using, I lose control. And this next po poem speaks to that. It's called The Breath of the Dragon. Deep is the draw to the breath of the dragon. You can feel the burn melt the flesh at the nape of your neck, yet there you still linger. 
caressing the flames of the poisonous tongue as your sparks scar your skin. You linger in the enticement of his mythical snare as your dreams become quicksand in a hypnotic stare of seduction on a crumbling cliff. Each swing brings you closer to death's final wish, yet you hinder in the throbbing of his fire-breathing rasp just one taste of relief, but you know it won't last to tame the torment and make it through another long night for it Daylight brings the craving of an excruciating bite of the vicious rattler, constricts your waning soul. Its poison-potent venom tricks your mind until it's gone beyond remembrance. Your mirror bears your shame as you dance in line with demons on a snowy summer dangling down your mouth drop. Lies your shattered glass rock pipe as you gasp for the escape from the anguish drugs have brought forth like a battle cry in a warrior going down. I'm still shuddering in defeat as I can still hear their sound. Mommy, please stop using. Won't you come and get me, please? But their cries remained unanswered for many years as I lingered in the underbelly of the dragon, unable to break free. I spent the next 15 years in and out of jail, mental hospitals, and rehabs, living in six different states, 20 different cities, causing wreckage in every place I went. You see, the guilt and shame behind losing my kids was so painful, I used it as an excuse to keep using. See, I hated myself. I really hated myself. And it wasn't until years later that I realized that my self-hatred went deeper than the guilt I felt over losing my kids. At the root of the self-hatred was the feeling of responsibility for the sexual abuse that happened to me as a child. And because it was my own father, it was very convoluted and shameful, and it caused me to develop a core belief system that I was fundamentally flawed, dirty, and bad. And the shame behind that created a vicious cycle of self-punishment that would span over many years, causing me to self-sabotage repeatedly because I didn't think I deserved success. You see, even when I had put that clean time together and worked a fourth step with a sponsor, I never talked about the sexual abuse. I kept it a secret. Remind us, what is the fourth step? Oh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's, it, it's an inventory process. It's where you take a personal inventory of, your, of everything that's happened to you. And so, I, but I never talked about it. I was unable to process it at that time in my life. And I was so ashamed about it being my own father. And that corroded me and kept me stuck for many years. Today, I share openly about it because my dad sexually abusing me is his burden of shame to carry, not mine. And I hope that my openness about it will maybe help another person bring their secret to light. Now, I'm not here to blame my lifelong addiction on this trauma. That is not the message that I'm trying to portray. But I think that many treatment programs focus on behavior modification. Um, you know, stop lying, stop stealing, that, that type of thing, instead of trying to address the shame that creates a suffering so deep that a person will go to such drastic measures, including giving up everything that they love to cover that hole to, for some relief. Nobody grows up wanting to be an addict. And while not everybody that experiences trauma becomes an addict. Every addict that I know that has gone to the as depths of their addiction like I have has experienced trauma. And that right there, in my opinion, is the key to healing 
And for me, that is where God comes in. But building a relationship with God is not easy. There's no, for me, there was, it was no magic button or burning bush. And what makes it even more difficult is um, if you've been in a lot of abusive situations, it's not easy when you're a person who as addiction has took them as far as I have, where you're living on the streets as a homeless person, where you're shunned by society in a way that only homeless people know. And all these things have a huge impact on how someone views a loving God. And then there's the issue of being angry at God, um, which brings me to that core question that so many of us had. Why does God let bad things happen? Why did he, why does, why did he do that? Why did he let that happen to me when I was a little girl? And so this next poem speaks to exactly that. God, I reached for you in the burn rays of the scolding summer sun when his fiery wrath became the breath of my scarlet letter song. I looked for you in the aftermath, my mother's unconscious stare. Her tears wet my young body, a burden no three-year-old should bear. I begged for you in the back bend, my father's dance of disregard as he leaped the lair of liars on the bloodlust landmine floor. Where were you, God, to save me? On the night of the wailing moon, the slaughtering of my innocence, a red crimson crescent doom. You failed me, cried my sorrow, my bloodlet anguished rage, as I slid into the downslide of trauma's insisting claim, when reality lost its grip and I turned to drugs to ease the pain. Fragmented by the falsehoods in the land of forget-me-nots, I was caged by the falling angel and lost in the release from agony's assault. Captured in the enticement of drugs' seductive slur, I snaked that black fandango, a nodding Nelly junkie girl, and now stolen from the sunset is the glory of your song as my gaze now focused downward to that needle in my arm. Imprisoned by the mental warfare, psychic torture, rerun rant, come feed me now I'm hungry, demands addiction's cackling chant. Enslaved by the seducing sorcerer and his poison pistol kiss, what I thought was supposed to love me almost killed me. God, I plead with you, don't let me die like this. It's in the prayer of the dying desperate when God finds his way in, in the song of a thousand angels come and heal her broken wing. For the power of God's grace is formed strongest in the weak, a mounting force to back the weary and a light to guide the meek. So in my final hour, as death lay at my door, a voice called out my na name, redeemed my soul from Hellgate's floor. Ruby, my sweet daughter, come to me. Surrender, and you won't have to fight no more, as I will love you like the daddy that you always wish you had, and I'll hold you in my arms and release your pain when you are sad. And in those sullen moments, when your memories bring despair, and the lies inside your head cast doubt on my truth. Did God ever even care? I will come to you in a whisper and remind you that I was always there, that the survival of your struggle is now the spirit of your strong, as your triumph manifests the lyrical language that creates your poetic song. So now back to the question. 
Why does God let bad things happen? And that is the million dollar question, right? And we can chase that question forever, but we may never get an answer. Or we can make a perspective shift and start asking, okay, God, yes, that happened to me. Tell me what you want me to do now. Show me what I'm supposed to do with that. And for me, in the very personal and customized way that God works, he helped me find my voice and healing through poetry. It started a year ago while I was still living in the homeless shelter. I would wake up in the middle of the night with these images and words in my head and this strong urge to write. And I made the choice to listen. And you see, God will show you, show up if you ask him, but you must choose to listen. And that can be scary for a lot of people. God will speak to you, but you must listen. I, I can't emphasize that enough. And, and I chose to listen. And so I started writing poetry about bringing awareness to homelessness and mental illness and addiction and building a relationship with God. And I've had the privilege to be able to share my poetry in a few different venues. And this is just the beginning for me. Um, this is a dream come true for me. When I'm standing in front of an audience reading a poem and I look out and I see people move to tears, it does something to me in me that I can't explain. And I have found healing in that. And that's directly from God. The blessings that I've received have just been um, beyond words. <clears throat> but all of this is still a process and I struggle every day with my relationship with God. And so this is just me working on it, just like everybody else, one day at a time. What I finally learned was that my ideas and my concept about God says a lot more about who I am than it does about who God is. So when I start to marginalize God based on my own faulty belief systems, I have to remind myself of that. You see, God, the truth is that God is steadfast and unchanging and loving and trusting and powerful and beautiful and miraculous. A part of our job as Christians in recovery, Christians who've experienced trauma, Christians who have struggled with the concept of God, it is our job to lead other people to God. But my goal tonight, today, is to hopefully be a reminder that everyone is deserving of God's love, no matter what you've done in your past or what has happened to you. Isaiah 43, 1-2 says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. This is my favorite verse. What it reminds me of is that God chose me. He chose me. It's hard for me to even fathom that, but he chose you too. You belong to him and he loves us. And it is our job to remind us each other of that, that we are all deserving. So today I speak to everyone, but I especially speak to the person who in their addiction has chosen drugs over their kids repeatedly. I'm speaking to the addict who has stolen from every person in their family. I am speaking to the addict who has promised to come to birthday parties and never showing up. I'm speaking to the addict who has left their children home alone in the middle of the night so they can go get high. I'm speaking to the alcoholic who drives drunk with their children in the back seat. I am speaking to the alley dwellers and the gutter drunks who have lost everything in the name of addiction. I'm speaking to the college graduate who gave up 
her life to keep that needle in her arm. I'm speaking to the chronic relapser who has turned their life over to Christ, but they keep relapsing, losing everything again and again and again. I'm speaking to the person who has continued to use while they were pregnant. I'm speaking to the addict who has sold their body for a $20 bag of dope. I'm speaking to the addict whose kids were mistreated because they were high and not watching. I'm speaking to the person who was holding a secret so shameful that they have vowed to take it to their grave because they are convinced that no one will understand. They are convinced they are alone, that their secret makes them unlovable and unforgivable and uniquely different than everybody else, that what they have done is worse than what everybody else has done. And they don't deserve God's love because that is not true. Now, everything I listed a minute ago, I have done. And I'm not proud of it. And it hurts. And there's a lot of shame around it. And it's something that that is probably going to be a lifetime of healing from those things. But I share openly about it because God has called me to do that. To help other people like me who have gone through the same thing. And to remind them that they're not alone. That there are other people that have done the same things and that, that we are all deserving of God's love. 18 months ago, I hit the worst bottom of my life. I was homeless, strung out, and in desperate need of help. I had nowhere to go, so I showed up at the Modesto Gospel Mission, and that is where I found God. Today, I have 18 months clean. I have a job that I love, and God is slowly revealing to me what his purpose for me is. And I am so blessed beyond anything I could ever imagine. I'm going to end this with a poem. It's called God to the Broken Woman. So this is my last poem, and this is a communication between, um, between me and God. So it goes back and forth between me and God. Surrender your life to follow his lead. God's love is all-powerful. You must trust and believe. But how do I do that? What does that mean? This love that you speak of, God, I've never even seen. For I'm the fear child. My life was a fight. My daddy in the daytime became my monster at night brings on thunder and storm winter winds, a force of destruction so powerful. It will rip away at every one of your limbs like the dry branch, brittled in pain, who cracks in the heartbreak every time someone says, I love you, they then walk away. Don't you know, God? I'm the lone one that no one would claim. For they say damaged is the tree that's been watered by shame and broken is the girl who so desperately needed your help. I screamed out your name, God, and you never came. So when they ask if I trust and believe, well, I don't even know what you want me to say. Nothing, my child. I know the extent of your pain. I know every word of your story, every desire of your heart, for I wrote them. I have them engraved like your name on the palm of my hand, and there is something I need you to understand. You can come to me with your anger. You can come to me with your pain. You can punch, kick, and scream, God, it is you that I blame, and I will sit here and listen and love you. Just the same as I did on the day you were born, as the day you gave your life to drugs' unwinnable war, I will love you the same. 
because there is nothing in this world that you could do or say to change the way that I feel for you are my daughter. You are my lost sheep, the one I chase down and claim. I'll leave the others behind to help you find your way simply because I love you and I chose you. You have not been forgotten. You have not gone unheard. And you are not alone, for I am right here. I have always been near. I don't expect you to believe that right now, for I know the deception that wets every single one of your tears, and I want to make this message unmistakably clear. The bad things that happened to you had nothing to do with me. That part was not me. You see, free will gives birth to authenticity and beauty and gives the freedom to choose and some use it for good and some misuse and many, many others abuse for this is a fallen world and I am so sorry you were hurt. I know every detail of your pain and I promise you, I promise you, if you come to me, the tragic part of your story will not be in vain, but you must come to me. I don't know how. You see, God, I'm just trying to make sense of all that you said because it's in direct opposition of every voice in my head telling me I'm unlovable and undeserving of love. I built an entire belief system on that. And now you've come to tell me that I've been misled? That the self-hatred I've suffered was all based on a lie? That I really am worthy? And there's a purpose for my life? Because if that is the truth, do you know what that means to me deep down inside? Like my glimmer of hope still miraculously shines and I can stand in the mirror and look the world in the eye and walk down the street with my head held up high because I have never had that. So overwhelmed with emotion right now, I can't even describe like my heart has found a piece of puzzle that I've been searching for an entire lifetime. I've been looking for acceptance and love. No matter how hard I tried, it was never enough. For when you try to heal pain in all the wrong places, no matter how bad you want it or how desperately you would chase it, you will never find it there. You will never find it. And that broke me. That broke me deep down inside, and after so many years of the same pain and anguish, I just wanted to die. I had given up, and I wanted to die. And it was in that moment, it was in that moment, that God said, rise up, my child, for I need you alive. You are my strong one. You are my warrior princess. Your time here is not done. I know the plans I have for you. My plans to prosper you have only just begun. Come to me, daughter, and your life will be a representation of my glory as I will take the ashes from your trauma and mold your life into this beautiful story about the girl who overcame adversity and used her experience to lead many other people towards me. Come to me, daughter. And your greatest struggles will be the catapult on which you rise, the pain of your past, now a tool you can use to help so many other suffering lives. Nothing is wasted in my world, daughter. Come to me, 
Trust me. Give me your heart. I'm not saying it will always be easy. But even faith the size of a mustard seed, that is all you need to start. Yes, you will stumble many times, but I won't let you fall. Rise up, my daughter, for your name has been called. Thank you. So, Ruby, your story is incredible. Uh, you know, you have childhood of trauma. You have addiction. There's seasons of sobriety, uh, teenage motherhood, and then much more trauma. Um, what finally brought you to the Modesto Gospel Mission? I was in a really bad place. I'd been homeless. It was during the pandemic. I was in Sacramento at a mental hospital and I found a flyer there for the Modesto Gospel Missions New Life Program. And somehow I knew, I, I just knew that I needed to be there. And now I look back and I know it was God speak, working through me at that point. It took me eight months to get there. Um, one example of how bad my addiction had gotten at that point, the day before I I arrived at the Modesto Gospel Mission. I sold myself for $20. So that is how low I had gotten. And, and, and so there I am at the Modesto Gospel Mission with nothing. And I, um, I, got, I got COVID within a week of being there. That doesn't sound like a fun situation. <laughs> no, no. And I was isolated in this room with one other woman who had COVID and she was still using drugs and I had six days clean and I'm a chronic relapser and we're stuck in this room for 10 days, not allowed to leave. There's two mattresses on the floor and a Bible and, um, and we're sharing the same room. Like it was just all bad. Right. And, and she's high and I just, I knew I couldn't do it on my own. Like I knew I couldn't stay clean in that room on my own for that long. And I just was tired. I was tired of that life. And I, I took my hearing aids out so she, I could, I could just block her out. And I just prayed. I said, God, if you're real, Jesus, if you're real, like I need you to, I need you right now. I need you. And something happened in that something happened. I had the spiritual awakening. I, I can't describe it. And I started reading the Bible and I'm in the heaviness of the old Testament. I started from page one. I got through Samuel. I got up to Samuel and, but I in through all the heaviness of Leviticus and numbers in that God spoke to me through that. And even when I read it now, I'm like, it's how? hard. To, I mean, yeah. How? For someone that's never read the Bible or doesn't, didn't even believe in Christ, how that spoke to me, but it spoke to me. Right. You were not raised in a, in a Christian family at all. No. No church no. background. Not, none. So you start with Genesis. I start with Genesis and I'm reading through all the, you know, and something happened in that 10 days and no, it's not like it's just been easy since then, but that was the beginning for me. Right. The other part of your story that you've told me is the impact that other uh, Christian women have had on you. Um, why don't you tell us about that? You know, that's that's just right there at the heart of what has helped save me. And I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to reach out to people that are struggling like that. So I had 
there was two women, um, Nancy Grant and Gail Peterson, who come in and they do a Bible study at the mission. Even during COVID, here's these little old ladies coming in to bring this Bible study. And and they took me under their wing. And, and part of it is I had a lot of questions and I was really engaged in the study and I wanted to know more. But they took me under their wing and started Nancy. I go to Nancy's house on Thanksgiving. Uh, they they invited me to their to their Bible study at their church. So I was doing one at the mission, but then also at my church cross point. And the way that the women surrounded me in that four o'clock Bible study, I remember. I remember on the first day of Bible study, we had this homework assignment. We were going to pray for each other, and I was saying in my mind, I was like, "They don't. No one really does this. This. This is." No one really does this. And they really do. I got a text from Nancy saying, what are your kids' names? Because I was on my walk this morning and I wanted to pray for them. And that had, she's never even met my kids. I haven't seen my kids in years. And that had such a huge impact on me. Like, wow, they really care. They really, they really do do this, you know? Yeah, it's not just uh, Christian lingo. Oh, I'll be praying for you. Yeah, yeah, no, they really do it. Um. They really want to hang around me. And I would sit into this Bible study and be like, do they have any idea the things that I've done? Like, they don't They don't know. And they would just continue to invite me to things. They still do. So that shame that you had been living with, and you still mm-hmm. struggle. We all struggle with shame. Yeah. Um, the shame narratives that usually say, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. Mm-hmm. I'm not worthy of being accepted, especially in a church setting. Yeah. Uh, before you became a Christian, what did you think about Christians? I thought it was a bunch of baloney. I, I, I did. I thought that my mom had some bad experiences in the church, I think. So it, it, not only were we not raised Christian, but it was very, um, Christianity was definitely looked down upon in our family. And it's hard to even say what I really thought about Christians on the radio. It is. It was all negative. Everything negative. That was my corny. You know, I I just just love Jesus. All that was just corny to me. That was the message growing up that I got. That it was, there was no truth to it. And that it was corny. And that there's these people just trying to push the Bible on everybody. um, Like with an agenda, you know. And... And that's not it at all. That's not. No, you you definitely have experienced the reality of Jesus Christ working in your life. Oh, yeah. And again, you've talked a lot about shame. Um, I, I talk a lot about shame uh, just in what I do. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was how do you change the shame narrative? Is it as easy as just going, well, I'm not going to believe that anymore? Or what do you what do you do with that? So for me, a big part of that is there's that fundamental belief that that or that base belief, faulty belief that I'm unlovable. And the way that that has changed for me is part of it has been the way, the way that the women in the church or the way that the church has rallied around me in every step, the way that I got a job at the church, despite my background, the way that I got, um, when I moved out of the mission, the church women just kind of surrounded me and helped get all this different stuff. So as I, as, as I have this group of people around me who all follow Jesus and who all 
love God, as they kind of surround their love onto me, that sort of like, wow, maybe, maybe I do have some value. Maybe I really am lovable. And so because I feel that way, what happens as a result of that, when you start to feel loved, then you start to, your behavior changes. My behavior has changed because of that slowly. So when I go into a store and, um, I've been a thief my whole life in my addiction. So when I go into a store now or when I, um, it's like, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm better than that. God loves me. I'm worthy more of, of behaving like that. A person that is deep set in, in shame and, and feeling unloved more than trying to say, Oh, you know, you shouldn't do that behavior because you're sinning against God. You shouldn't do that behavior because that's, that's against what it says in the Bible. I don't think that that's what promotes change. What promotes change and what helps a person's change is showering them with love. And in that, when they start to feel like, wow, maybe I do have some value and there's this God that loves me and I want to live a different life. And that's where the shame narrative changes for me. That is awesome. Well, Ruby, I just want to thank you for joining us today. It has been such a blessing to hear your story, to hear about finding really the goodness of God in just such a dark time in your life. We're just going to continue to pray that God's blessings will just be experienced by you, but also through you. And again, just thank you for sharing with us. Yes, thank you. We thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you're interested in experiencing the same kind of God's goodness that you heard about today, you can reach out to a prayer line at 1-800-700-7000. We pray that no matter where you find yourself today, that you will be experiencing God's goodness.